Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this episode, we're looking at the book of Joshua, uh, Moses' successor, I think, and uh, be interested to know the part he plays in, in the story. But in a sentence, Mike, you know, what is the book of Joshua about? It's the story of how Israel at last comes to take possession of the land that God had promised to Abraham, whoa, 700 years earlier. So it's all about getting your inheritance. And in a sense, that's why it's a great book for us to read today, not just for the historical information it gives about Israel's history and story, but a challenge to us not to settle for less than God has promised us. So we're at this quite exciting point where the people are what getting ready to enter Canaan. Indeed. And I mean, if you can imagine, you know, one of the best ways to read the Bible is to try and put yourself into the story. And I think if we can put ourselves into the story as, you know, you look back over your history and you tell the stories of your ancestors of these centuries of being prepared for this, going right back to Abraham and the promise God gave him in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and, and all that Moses had prepared you for. And suddenly you are on the edge of actually entering. You know, it's a bit like you've been preparing for Christmas all these days and you wake up and it's Christmas morning. Well, that's a bit of the atmosphere as we come to Joshua. It's time to open the presents and to see what God has given and yet mixed with that excitement, the story opens with, with a little tinge of a sort of gulp and a swallow in your throat because the story starts with the words, after the death of Moses. Now, again, put yourself into the situation. This is the man who's led you through the wilderness. This is the only leader you as a people have ever known. He is the one who's gone to God, heard from God, both challenged and encouraged you. And there must have been a sense of, oh my goodness, you know, what's going to happen now? But it's okay, God has a plan. One of the great things we see in the Bible is that God always has a plan, don't we? And the plan is that the man whom Moses has been training all these years in the wilderness, it's now time for him to step up to the mark and to take on the leadership mantle that Moses has prepared him for. And so one of my favorite passages in Joshua, it's in like the preparation scene of the first few chapters. In, in chapter one, uh, God speaks to Joshua and he knows, he knows how he must be feeling. And he speaks to him in his first words, Moses, my servant, is dead. So he must have, oh, yeah, I know that, Lord, thank you very much. <laughs> Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan into the land I'm giving them. I promise you what I promise Moses. Oh, I bet he needed to hear that. Because mm, he's, he's going to be a hard act to follow. Absolutely. But I'm giving you the promise I gave him. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land that I've given you. No one will be able to stand against you. And then these powerful words that are still so powerfully encouraging for us today. And that's the great thing about the Bible, written so long ago, but still so powerful and punchy and relevant be strong and courageous, for you are the one who lead these people. 
to possess the land that I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Don't turn from the left or right. And so it goes on. So there's the Moses is dead, but you, you're the one who's been called to do this. I know you're scared, so be strong. Actually, he says be strong three times to him in this chapter. (laughs) But also be obedient. Be strong, but be obedient. If you'll obey the word that Moses gave you from me, then it will go well with you. And with that encouragement, Joshua calls everyone to start getting ready to prepare the camp ready for what is to come. And I noticed you said there was a reference there to possessing the land. So the land they were going into, which was already occupied by the Canaanites, they were going to possess. There's got to be a strategy there. I mean, what's the next step? Yes, and I think it's just worth just pausing to say this is a promise that God had made to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, 17, three different aspects of the promise. But God had said to Abraham, I'm giving you this land, but I can't give it you yet because I have to wait until the sin of those people is so full, it will be evident to everybody that when you go in to take it, it will not be unjust, it will be just. It will be my judgment coming on a sinful people. And I mean, Canaanite religion had lots of horrible practices. Uh, It was a fertility religion. So there were temple prostitutes at the temples. Some expressions of it involved child sacrifice. So as the reader comes into this book, he or she will find some really challenging bits. Think, Oh my goodness, that's tough, isn't it? But the truth is, this is God's judgment coming on a people that God has patiently waited for to turn to him for hundreds of years. So how does that begin? It's going to begin in chapter two with Joshua sending spies out into the land. That sounds familiar. Joshua was a spy himself. He was, wasn't he? Do you remember that story? Mm. And now, so he'd learned the value of it clearly. Mm. So he now does the same. He sends spies out to check things out. And in particular, to check out the first town they're going to have to take, Jericho, was on the road that ran from east to west that cut the country in half. It was a very strong fortress. He knew he was going to have to capture that. So he sends spies out. That's where we get the story of uh, Rahab, who was actually a prostitute, but who finds salvation and who escapes all that is to come by her believing that God is indeed behind all of this. So great story there to see how no matter what we've been in the past, there's always hope for us. We can always find God and become part of God's people. The spies come back. They ford the Jordan. Chapter three then is this exciting story of them crossing the River Jordan. Now, the River Jordan isn't actually a very big river. It was a little bit bigger in those days because these days, It's been dammed for water supplies and so on. Uh, But you could still sort of throw a stone across it. But the thing is, between the end of two, when the spies come across, when they forded across, and chapter three, the river is now in flood. (laughs) The snows melt up on Mount Hermon, way up in the north, in the mountains, and come rushing down, and they now can't get across. This has echoes of crossing the Red Sea. It does, doesn't it? And who made crossing the Red Sea possible? God did. It was an impossible feat, and this was going to be impossible. 
And so it was going to take as big a miracle as crossing the Red Sea to get across this. And the miracle would take the shape of, you know, when God often speaks to us and it can seem crazy at first, can't it? And God says, okay, how are we going to do this? What I want you to do is to get some volunteers from the priests and the Levites, and they're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant, that gold-covered box that contained the Ten Commandments, this most precious artifact in Israel's history. And God said, get the priest to step into the Jordan. Remember, this Jordan that's now flooding, flowing fast, dangerous. And the minute they step into it, the water will stop flowing. Now, again, put yourself in the story when you're reading this. Imagine you were the priest at the front <laughs> and Joshua says, OK, off you go. You know, and you're sort of you're standing there thinking, oh, OK. And you put your foot in. And as you do, the water stops. It tells us why. Piled up high at a place called Adam. Uh, and it happened in the 1920s at exactly the same place. There was a rock fall there. <laughs> and it looks like the water's piled up behind a rock fall. And it happened upstream at such a moment that when the priests put their foot in at that very moment, the water stopped flowing. So a miraculous entry into the promised land, just like a miraculous exit out of the land of slavery. So there was symbolism, to say the least then, in leaving behind where they'd come from to where they were going. Exactly. I think there are two things. One is, yeah, the symbolism of crossing over to a new phase of life. This is a new shelf in the library. Leave behind what we have been, move into the new. But there was a second symbolism. Because remember the gods of Canaan, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, were all gods of fertility religions. And that meant that it was believed that these gods sent fertility on the land and the way that you encouraged them to send fertility was by having sexual relationships with temple prostitutes at their temples and their shrines. And one of the things that Baal controlled the Canaanites on the other side believed was, of course, the most fundamental thing needed for fertility, water. So when the Jordan went into flood, the Canaanites on the other side would have been thinking, here, you see, look at Baal, look what he's done for us. We knew these Israelites were coming, but Baal sent a flood. Baal's protected us. Now put yourself in the place of the Canaanites when they see Baal's power broken by Yahweh, the living God, and the waters stop flowing. So it's a crossing over, but it's also a shaking of the very gates of hell, as it were, to say God is on the move and the living God is greater than any other gods. So a very very important moment in their history. How is that marked? It's marked in two ways. First, they mark it with a pile of stones. <laughs> <laughs> they took some stones out of the middle of the river and set them up on the other side. And it, it was to be like a memorial. And Joshua said, let's set 12 stones up. 12, why? One for each of the tribes. So that whenever your kids pass this pile of stones in future and say, yeah, dad, what, what's that pile of stones there for? Ah, I'm glad you asked me that, son or daughter. Because that reminds us of how God led us across the Jordan. And the second thing it's marked with 
is in chapter 5, all the men are circumcised. Circumcision had been one of the signs of the covenant that God had given way back to Abraham. And all the baby boys had always been circumcised. But during their time in the wilderness wanderings, whether it was because they'd forgotten or they just thought it wasn't hygienic in the wilderness, who knows, but they had neglected the act of circumcision. And of course, that was the physical sign that marked you out as belonging to God's people. So that's the next thing that they do is that they circumcise all of the men of all of the ages. Um, and here is a sign of saying, God, we declare we are indeed your people. And on the day that they do that and move into the promised land, guess what? That manna that has been falling throughout those 40 years of being in the wilderness suddenly stops appearing. Why? Because from now on, they're going to be able to dig and grow their own crops. I suspect it's not just a matter of crossing the Jordan and then marching into the promised land. You've already mentioned the fortified city of Jericho. Yes, um, people weren't going to lie down and say, oh, yeah, welcome, we've been waiting for you. You know, this is the land that they felt was theirs. And so chapter 6 tells us the very exciting story of the conquest of the fortress of Jericho. I've visited there, seen its ruins. Its walls are enormously thick. And yet Joshua was able to conquer Jericho. And the amazing thing is he does it not with troops or weapons of any kind. He does it in the most incredible way. And he does it in a way that God sets up to say, I want you to know, Joshua, that you're going to have to do this my way. And so it happens through a praise march. God tells the people, the priests with the ark, to march around the city for six days, to march around it once, and on the seventh day to march around it seven times. And at the end of that seventh time on the seventh day, to give a great shout, and God said, and the walls will collapse. Now, again, put yourself in the story. What would you have thought at that moment these very thick walls that you've mentioned but they did it and guess what the walls collapsed now humanly speaking it could well have been an earthquake at that moment that brought them down because this world is god's world and he can use whatever he wants but the walls collapsed they're able to go in and they conquer this key city this city that controls the route that leads into the promised land and cuts it in two. But they did it because they did it God's way, not by using their own clever thinking. Now, they must have been on something of a high, and I suppose they must have thought to themselves, well, we're on a roll here. They did indeed. And there's a warning for us, because whenever we're on a high and on a roll and think, yeah, we can do it, can't we? That's when it gets really dangerous. So chapters 7 and 8 tell us a very sort of uh, cautioning tale because God had said at Jericho that the people were to take no loot or no booty for themselves, but that everything in the city was to be dedicated to him. It was the one thing he wanted. It was like giving the first fruit or giving a tithe, give it me first. But there was a guy called Achan, one of the Israelites who had 
seen a beautiful robe and uh, some silver and some gold, and it was so tempting. Sin is often so tempting, isn't it? It looks good. That he took it, hid it, buried it under his tent. So when they went in then to attack the next city west down the road, Ai, Joshua thought, do you know what? We did that so easily back at Jericho. We only need to send a few hundred men. But they're routed. Many of the men are killed. They come back and say, no, what's gone wrong? You know, has God left us or what? And they pray and God says it's because there's sin in your camp. Someone did what I told you not to do. And they go through a process of God leading them to the man who had done it in chapter 7. This man, Achan, they find it buried under his tent. And when it's exposed, that guy is put to death for his sin, actually along with his family. Wow, that seems pretty tough. But think about it. If it had been buried in his tent, you ever tried to dig anything in the ground and cover it up and make it look like it's not been moved? They probably knew and were sharing in this as well. And it brings home one of the things we saw in the previous books, that God is a holy God. And you can't mess about with him. And Achan had thought he could. And so there's a very sobering story here. But once that is dealt with and once the sin is dealt with, as always happens in the Bible, once sin is dealt with, then we can move on with God. So in chapter 8, we find that Ai is then taken and then the Israelites are able to, to move on and begin to take both the southern and then the northern parts of the land. I think you said just now that as they at last entered the promised land, they then conquered the north and the south. So geographically, where did they come into the promised land? Well, they entered from the east of the River Jordan, just north of the Dead Sea. Uh, and and they go across this road that that linked. They were, there was a road that ran down the coast called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea, a road that ran east of the Jordan called the King's Highway. And this road linked the two that went through Jericho. That's why Jericho was so important. And so they divide the country in two. They're, they're splitting the country in two. Though we need to remember that at this point, it wasn't a country as such, so much as a a coalition of areas and states and people groups. And then having split it in two, which is a very clever military strategy. So Joshua has not put his, his, his brain in the freezer. <laughs> you know, he is looking to God for his leading, but he's also using the brain God's given him. So having cut it in two, they then take the area to the south over the next few years, then will take the area to the north. The interesting thing is while they take these areas, there are pockets of resistance that they leave, that they, they weren't able to conquer, or that they conquer and, and then sort of just move on once the people are subsumed and, and let them continue. And this ongoing existence of some of the other people groups with their gods and their horrific practices will play into the story further down the bookshelf. So God was demanding a full takeover. He was. And I think we have to be honest and say that, you know, as we read that in the 21st century, some of these stories are really 
hard for us to grasp and thinking, why would God affirm a, a complete takeover? And I always start by saying, do you know what? That is challenging. I can't pretend this is not a challenging bit of the Bible. But I think we have to remember, first, God had promised this land to Moses back in Genesis. Second, he'd said to Moses that I can't give you this land until the sin of these people is absolutely complete. That's in Genesis 15. And it's like God has waited, 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 given them opportunity. After all, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob lived among them with their children as a witness to the truth of the living God. But these people groups continued in their ways and remembered not just a little bit of idolatry, but also immorality used for religious purposes, temple prostitutes, even child sacrifice in some expressions of this. God has given them actually centuries to respond to him and to turn to him and to turn away from their wicked ways. However, what we also need to remember is that while the story of Jericho does include God saying, I want you to destroy everything that's in it, it does seem like as the story goes on, that doesn't happen in every place. And clearly there was always the opportunity to turn to God. So Rahab is one who is spared. The prostitute. The prostitute is spared from judgment upon Jericho. Why? Because she put her trust in God. And the same was true of all these other places. There was always the opportunity to turn to God. But this, what's called holy war, very often in inverted commas, is challenging. But I think what we see as we go on, and, and some people simply dismiss it as well, it was a reflection of the primitive times that they lived in, wasn't it? And that's not really what God wanted. What I think we do see as we go through the Bible story is that as the story progresses, while the judgment of God is always true and always real and has to be taken seriously, ultimately our war as Christians is not through a sword, but through a cross. That's the war that Jesus won. Not through a sword as Jews were expecting a, a political and military Messiah, but a Messiah who gave himself to conquer others. So let's not model ourselves on this thing, that we're going to go out, kill everybody who doesn't believe. For a particular purpose and a particular reason, in a very limited way, that was part of the bigger story. But where the story is going is that the warfare we're now in is a spiritual warfare that we wage through prayer and through the cross of Christ, not through our fists or a sword. Can I just pick up on the point you were making about the fact that as their military campaigns continued, they sort of slightly left undone certain areas. And what what kind of parallel is there with with our lives now? Well, I think what it speaks to us of is, you know, when you live, leave sort of pockets of resistance in your life, it's always asking for trouble later down the line. Now, at the time they did this, no doubt they thought, well, that's fine. It's only a little city. You know, it's not going to cause as much problem. 
But later down the line in the story, we will see that the descendants of these people, with their gods, will entice Israel away from the living God. Why? Putting it bluntly, sex. The sexual activity that could take place at these temples with the temple prostitutes. So, at a human level, it was very attractive, unless you set your heart against that. We live in a culture in which we are surrounded, bombarded, with an abuse of sex, the use of sex in a way that God doesn't say is best and approve of. And so if we leave little pockets of resistance in our life, not just about that issue, but about any issue, if we leave little fortresses and think, well, it will be okay, I can come back to it in a few years' time, it's not doing much harm, the message from this book is, watch out, it will always come back to bite you in the butt. They're in the land at last. There's a lot of them. How on earth do they get organised? <laughs> well, clearly they all need to know where to settle. So in the second half of this book, a big section, chapters 13 to 22, um, Joshua casts lots is the biblical expression. We don't know exactly what that was, but it, it was the equivalent of our drawing names out of a hat. And it was often done with stones or wooden sticks that were marked in some way. But it was done prayerfully before the Lord, believing God would guide as you did that. And they cast lots to decide which of the tribes are going to live in which part of the country. So tribes like Benjamin and Simeon, for example, end up living in the south. Tribes like Dan, Asher and Naphtali end up living way up in the north by Lake Galilee. Two and a half of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, had asked for land to the east of the Jordan and had been told they could have that, but they had to come and fight for their brothers and sisters and help them get the land in Canaan first. So half of Manasseh was east of the Jordan, half was west of the Jordan. So it's done through casting lots before the Lord so that no one can turn around and say, here, David, you've got, You've got some better pasture land than me. I didn't end up with very, well, listen, this was before God that we did this and we all agreed. And so the land is divided. There's one lovely story, by the way, I must just mention quickly in chapter 14, the story of Caleb. Do you remember? Caleb had been one of those guys who'd brought a good report with back. With Joshua. With Joshua himself. Well, one, of the, when, one of the 12 spies, that's yeah. That's right. And in chapter 14, um, he's he's an old guy uh, now. He's 85 years old, but he goes and says, you know, I'm still as strong and vigorous as when I was with Moses. Now give me the hill country that I was promised by God. And here's this picture of this older guy, not sort of saying, oh, you know, yeah. Could I just have that nice little field down there at the bottom? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just see out my retirement down here. He's a... I want to go and take the best that it can be. He wants his inheritance, even at 85 years old. So to older listeners, let me say to you, don't put your slippers on, spiritually speaking. Keep going for everything God said. And if there are still promises in your life that you've still not seemed to come to pass, then be like Caleb in chapter 14 and keep praying, God, give me that which you promised. 
Now, even though there were 12 tribes and they were now allocated their areas to live in, they were still one people. But what were the dangers of disunity? Well, at this stage, they are still very much what is technically called a tribal confederacy. They're still very much tribes rather than a nation. And so the reality is that the different needs and expectations of the tribes will start to come to the fore at different times. To try and make sure that that doesn't happen, what Joshua does at the end of his book in chapter 24 is he leads them in a covenant renewal ceremony to renew that covenant that God had made with them, the covenant that goes back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that was renewed through Moses at Mount Sinai. And there he leads all the tribes in this covenant renewal ceremony to remind them that they may be tribes, but they are one people with one God, the living God. And he calls them in verses 13 to 15 of that chapter to choose this day whom you will serve. Come on, it's decision time. Maybe even for someone listening today, it's decision time. You've been thinking and weighing it up a long time, but the point comes when we have to decide. And do you know what? Having decided even through life, there are repeated decision points where we keep saying, yes, I will continue with God. Yes, I will be part of his people. Yes, I am committed to my church. Again and again, reaffirmations of that first decision that we made. So 12 tribes that will have tensions in years to come, but renewed as one people of God as this book closes. And Joshua has, what, fulfilled his purpose? Yes, indeed, he has fulfilled his purposes. And we read at the end of the story that after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance. Wow, isn't that powerful? He'd made it. He'd got there. He'd got to the land of his inheritance. Moses hadn't. He'd only seen it from afar, remember, because of that anger that exploded one day. But Joshua is buried in the land of his inheritance. And what a fantastic way to sort of end this book, to say when God speaks, it is possible to keep going through the ups and downs of life and through the challenges and difficulties and to get there in the end and to be able to say, well, Lord, we made it, didn't we? And that's what Joshua says. And they bury him in the land where he'd made it to. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.